I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. You're going to get paper cuts. Like, is that kind of a page turner? If I keep reading these scripts, like, I'm going to start thinking that I'm that. I am sort of dumbfounded by the language. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. There are firsts in life that you remember. You know the ones that I mean. Things that happen when you're young and see the world with fresh eyes. That first-time feeling is beautifully captured in the graphic novel Roaming. It's another lovely collaboration from cousins Jillian and Mariko Tamaki, and it tells the story of friends traveling to New York City for the first time. It's a time balanced on the border between adolescence and adulthood when the world is wide open and friendship is everything. Jillian and Mariko Tamaki open today's program. Young love and friendship is also a theme in Asha Ashanti Bromfield's new novel, Songs of Irie. Our contributor Ryan B. Patrick speaks with Asha in a half an hour about setting her novel in Jamaica during the civil unrest of the 70s. Also later, Vivek Shreya answers the Proust questionnaire, and writer and Next Chapter columnist Elizabeth de Mariafi closes the program with recommendations on thrillers she just couldn't put down. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. It's 2009, and you're in between high school and adulthood. You're fully grown, but at the same time, you're still discovering who you are. Now, imagine being in that heightened moment while exploring one of the most iconic cities in the world with your friends. That's where Jillian and Mariko Tamaki's new adult graphic novel, Roaming, begins. It follows three first-year Canadian university students as they explore New York City on spring break. Friendships are tested, unexpected romance blossoms, and the pizza, well, it's endless. Roaming is the third graphic novel the cousins have created together, and their first for adult audiences. Their other collaborations are the award-winning YA graphic novels Skim and This One Summer. Jillian Tamaki and Mariko Tamaki join me from their respective homes in Toronto and Los Angeles. Here's our conversation. It's been nearly a decade since your last collaboration on This One Summer, and I'll ask both of you this question. How much have things changed for each of you in how you approach collaboration, or have they at all? I don't know if things have changed how... how I approach collaboration. I think Jillian and I specifically have such a set way of doing things together in that it's a very personalized way of working with each other. And it's distinct from other projects that I do specifically working for like DC or Marvel. It's very different. Um, I think I appreciate it. (laughs) I think I appreciate the freedom of working with someone that I've worked with so closely for so long. Um, Yeah, and it's a nice thing to appreciate. What is that unique way that you have of working with each other, if I can ask you, Mariko? I mean, I think we just have a sort of combined sense, which is not to say that I don't have that in other projects, but it's just a very familial sense of how we work together and how we sort of feel through a story together. And I think we have a sort of flavor to the projects that we do together and that they are very sort of specific slice of life, like a very observed realities as opposed to sort of, um, there's not a lot of plot, it's more a lot of experience in our work. And I think we tend to sort of experience those things together as we write um, in a way that's just very unique to us. Jillian, do you agree with that or is that completely false? <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> She's like, I don't, well... I don't connect with anything. <laughs> My take is, um, uh, no, I would agree. I mean, I think that our process is informed by the fact that we start both started making comics with no experience making comics <laughs> and it really was us learning the process together and having no training and figuring out how to tell a story our way and I think that that's really great I mean I almost wish I could go back sometimes to be 
less informed and, and have less of a streamlined process because there's something really difficult but um, cool about figuring it out as you're doing it. I think the results can be very raw and immediate and charming and um, unexpected versus if you have a very buttoned down process. Uh, so mm -hmm. I always try to keep that a freshness by mixing up the process a little bit because the result will always be different and you will be engaged in a deep, in a deeper way. Well, let's talk about roaming. In this novel, we're introduced to longtime friends and Canadian university students, Zoe and Danny, who are visiting New York City for spring break. Danny's classmate, Fiona, is also tagging along. And what ensues is five days of sightseeing and some conflict that we can get into. Jillian, what, what, what inspires you to want to explore this idea of traveling with friends for the first time? It's just such a specific experience. And it was based on some early trips I made as a college student and immediately after college where I look back on those, some of those trips that I took with um, friends and just thought, oh my God, I had no idea what I was doing. I could have, you know, gotten in trouble or <laughs> been in, a, you know, gotten, you get into sticky situations and you really don't know how to navigate the world at all. And so it was really based on um, that first semester of Queens University <laughs> I went to and really had my uh, uh, mind blown uh, and horizons expanded very rapidly. And some of those first trips um, with your friends and not your parents. When, that, that's my little elevator pitch for the, the book, because I think a lot yeah, of people yeah. have had that experience. Oh, oh, I certainly have. And I was remembering I went twice uh, while I was in college in Quebec before before university. And I was reminded of this one incident our friend Earl got very drunk and we were like, Earl, we gotta go. We're there. This one was a New Year's Eve trip and Earl was drunk. He goes, I'm gonna close my eyes and I'll just meet you guys at Times Square. And we just started, la we laughed uncontrollably for about 20 minutes because he's just gonna meet us at Times Square on New Year's. Right. That's the easiest <laughs> I'll see thing. You there. Or, or, yeah, I'll never see Earl again. Part of me I'll was never like, see maybe exactly. Earl is just gone now. A hundred percent. Earl would, would, there would be no more Earl. Yeah. And so I was really reminded of, of moments just like that, courtesy of this book. And Mariko, I have to ask you this. In the thank you note, your note at the end of the book, you thank every friend who ever went to New York with you and had, quote, uh, had a mostly fun time, quote. Mostly fun. And I'm really interested in the mostly fun time there. Tell me about those experiences, how much the mostly fun bits helped shape this book and, and what maybe was not so fun that could not make the book. I mean, I think it really is a make or breaker moment for a lot of friendships is to go on a trip together. I think you have, which this book outlines, you have your sort of first two days of like, everything is new and you're just really enjoying the experiences. And then I think like a level of like, like the sort of blood sugar levels and tired kind of like kick into a new experience of the trip around the third day when mm. everybody's just like a little cranky and like tempers are just a little shorter. I have a, one friend who I am certainly like better friends with because we went to New York together and it was like the most, one of the most bonding experiences of my life. And I've had other friends who at the end of the trip were like, maybe you and me, not so much. Maybe you and me, this is not, maybe we'll certainly never travel together again where you're just like, mm. You're cool, but you were really mean to me over breakfast, so I think that that's it. I'm not You're talking cool. about anyone specific. <laughs> no, of course. No, of course that sounds completely vague. I mean, Jillian can attest to this because she's traveled with me a lot. I definitely, around my third day, I'm just like, this is too much for me. I just need to eat my muffin and be alone. You know, like mm -hmm. I just like hit that spot of um, too much, for sure. I think there's something when you travel with people, you see all sides of them. <laughs> You see the, the good and the bad and the ugly uh, sort of in rotation. That So that's why I think that being friends with someone is one thing, but traveling with somebody is another thing. <laughs> sure. And Jillian, as the, dare, as the days wear on in the story, these relationships between Zoe, Danny, and Fiona, they grow more tense, as is expected, as you say. Danny wants to fit in, you know, this is a very common thing. So Danny wants to fit in sightseeing. That's as much as possible, that, that's her priority. Fiona is more preoccupied with shopping, partying, some not so secret uh, flirting with Zoe. What did you want to explore through those dynamics? 
mm, I just thought it's also delicious, you know? And it mm, really, mm. It, it, like those interpersonal dynamics and those interpersonal tensions, especially of young people, I think are our muse. Like they're so serious to you at the time and they are serious, but they're also so funny. And so I think like riding that balance of like really respecting those emotions and those dramas, but also like, it's funny. So I think that towing, towing that line is kind of our bread and butter. Um, but it really was also just reflecting on the nature of travel, um, of especially when you are haven't traveled a lot, you feel the need to go see the big things. Like, well, we have to go see the Statue of Liberty. Like, it's the, there's no question. That's what we, we have to go to, like, Times Square. And I think that there's, like, a tension of all these girls want to experience the city and the place and take in the place and take in the trip in a different way and they kind of clash. Uh, Jillian Roaming has been described as a love letter to New York City, but I couldn't help but feel it's so much more than that. Also shining a light on, you know, queer and Asian Canadian characters, um, experimenting with sex and self-expression in love. What was the process of illustrating that like? I don't know if that's a, I wouldn't describe it as a love letter in New York City. I mean, it's certainly rooted in a, in the reality of, or my attempt at reality of a certain time and place, which is a place I was familiar with. I lived in New York City in 2009. Um, that's the New York City that I know. It's a different city now, but it really could be anything. It could be Toronto or it could be uh, Calgary or, you know, it depends. If you're from a smaller place, the big city is going to have big city things and it's all relative. Our previous books uh, had taken place in very small, small environments, you know, high school or the cottage uh, over summer or, you know, your your private high school over the course of um, a semester. And then this was like, these kids are their own little cell in the whole world, you know, and it was sort of a flip of that idea. Um, instead of sort of the expansiveness of being in a small place, you're a little small person in a big place. So it was kind of wonderful to use travel as a, I don't know, medium almost <laughs> that these kids can float through. I'm just fascinated with the, the that, that world of drawing, because I can draw a stick man, but if the stick man has to throw a football, forget about it. So I was, you know, I, I It'd be just a lot faster imagine. to draw stick men. Yeah, to be yeah, honest. Yeah. I mean, that, I, that's just my way of doing it. I, I'm kind of joking a little bit, but there's a, a a lot of amazing comics that are kind of stick men. That's just my way of doing it. Is there's an element of reality, but uh, comics are really powerful. You know, those figures are just symbols. So I think that you can, as long as the story is legible and good and compelling um you can have very simple drawings and achieve um meaning and achieve emotion uh, mariko the book's called roaming what does that act of roaming mean to you uh well it's a kind of inside canadian joke on top of a literal meaning so the ongoing joke for anybody who's ever had a canadian cell phone and traveled to the states especially like back in the day was that if you turned the roaming on in your phone, uh, you would come home with a massive bill. One of my first trips to New York with a cell phone was my friend was like turning it on and then turning it off right away. Like you turn it on and like load the map and like, you know, screenshot it or whatever and then turn it off right away. So it's an inside joke to that experience, to the Canadian experience of being in the United States as a tourist. Um, and then it kind of just fits because it really is about this idea of being kind of let loose. Like we've said, you know, when you're a kid, you go to Florida with your parents. That's kid trip. And then when you're an adult, you go to New York with your friends uh, and you're kind of unleashed. Right. Like it's you know, you're unleashed. Nobody's telling you what to eat. So you eat pizza every night and you're free to kind of also without the sort of benefit of, you know, the cell phone experience. You're really just experiencing things as you encounter them. So we really wanted to sort of pay tribute to that. The book is set in 2009. And, and I think from my perspective, you know, I, I really like that also because of what you just said, Mariko, which is you're experiencing the moment, not needing to capture it on something else and, and, and see it through different eyes. Um, it is a world where Barack Obama is president 
and keeping your phone off during travel saves you a lot of money on those roaming charges, as you said. Why 2009? What was it about that particular year and, and that moment in time that you wanted to capture besides the broader cell phone charges, meaning that it could have been 2002 or the 90s as well? I mean, that was the time that I I lived in New York from 2005 to 2015. So that's smack dab in the middle of wow. my time there, right? Um, I also taught at art school there. So I was teaching a lot of 19-year-old kids that had moved to New York City from different places around the States, some from Canada, a lot of them from South Korea. So they were experiencing the city for the first time as well, you know, kind of unleashed. But I do think that there was something very amusing and useful narratively to set the book at that time because we don't travel the same way, you know? Um, I think the way, and I'm not saying that I am not guilty of this too, but you sort of look up, what's the best ice cream I can eat on this block? And you have that answer, you know? I feel like there's a little bit less stumbling Mm. upon things um you can plan that you're never going to get lost there's always a map there you're never going to fall out of contact with somebody you know you're never going to lose your friend in the city um and so that was narratively very useful to us i think that if you had a cell phone uh, in the story now some of those stuff some of the stuff that happens in the book might not even happen so sure i would say that you know new york was almost the fourth character in this novel. I mean, that's the way it felt when I was reading it. I know you were saying, um, Jillian, you were, you were suggesting that it could have been Calgary. Everybody's big city is a different city, but I, I felt New York played such a good role here. I think maybe it's because I connected with this idea of the spring break and the New Year's trips. In your mind, Mariko, what is the role of New York City? I mean, I think on the one hand, New York is so symbolic to these characters, like it represents so many things, like to uh, one of the characters, you know, it really represents like her knowledge and sophistication. Fiona is the character who is like, I have been to New York twice, like I know New York. And so it kind of gives her like authority. And I think for Danny, you know, it's just this like plethora of of all these things that she wants to experience, you know, like she's just got this like list of all these things she wants to hold and touch and experience while she's there and then I think for Zoe it's just kind of like like a cacophony of even more confusing things to add to her already confusing life I think Zoe's in a place where she's kind of just like yeah New York I guess you know everything's kind of a mess but yeah let's let's do New York why not I think it's just like I said I would so here I am so I think that that's the thing is it's so different like I think the person who has the sort of truest New York experience is Danny because she's the tourist of the group Jillian, I knew you lived in New York, but I don't think I fully appreciated how many years you lived there. And those cityscapes and, you know, the characters floating through them, there's kind of like a dreamlike quality a little bit as you're as you're reading it, especially the um, the hair on the way, you know, there's a flow through, you know, panel to panel. They they do also capture the beauty and the, the liveliness of New York. Is that stuff that you were referencing back in your in your memories or is it is it images of, you know, just stuff that's out there that you can pull from from pictures on the Internet or books? How do you do that? I mean, I get a little bit of a sick pleasure of recreating the world in miniature. It's like it does feel like kind of building a little dollhouse. (laughs) You're like the little law and order you know, Greek deli cups, like, but this big simplified down. And I, I get a little bit of a kick out of doing that, but it is, it was a combination really it, because again, like I said, that city doesn't exist anymore. The city of 2009 is gone with our previous books. We had gone to, or I had gone to Toronto and I had gone cause I didn't live here then. And I had gone to, um, sort of cottage country Ontario and really took pictures because I was not from those places. I wasn't familiar with those places in like a sensory deep way or a detailed, any sort of detailed way. So I went and took photos and um, researched the place. And I was kind of planning on doing that again with New York, but then COVID hit and I couldn't go down. It was like, well, it's going to have to be research online 
it was always going to have to be that to a degree because again the city has changed so much so even going down there wouldn't be the same so i actually do thank flicker in the notes at the end because the people every little corner has been documented in that city and uploaded and that was a site that was very popular at the time and it's from a first person people taking their tourist photos and so really leaned into that and try to rely more on memory and create and creating a reality that I'm of knowing what those streets are like you don't want it just to be a photograph because that would be very static and boring and you don't also want to clean it up too much and not have it gar kind of garbage and and um, the grit that makes the city the city too. But it was a balance, right, of um, my ex-New Yorker eyes <laughs> that, you know, really feels they knew, know the city, but also tapping into what it looks like to a tourist and somebody that has never been there and, and imbued with a little bit of shine and magic that you that wears off when you are like you've lived there for a long time. <laughs> so it was hitting that balance of a very, very informed mm. eye and but and but one that is seeing it fresh too at the same time. Jillian and Mariko Tamaki, very nice to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jillian Tamaki and Mariko Tamaki are the authors of the graphic novel Roaming. Hi, I'm Haley Smalls. I'm from Toronto, Canada. Um, I am a recording artist. My music can be described as a nostalgic yet modern form of R&B mixed with uh, hip-hop vibes. Sometimes I like to mix in other types of music like country or a little bit of maybe rock alternative vibes. Right now, I am reading The Labyrinth, A Spiritual Journey by Ellen Sana. The Labyrinth is about an archetype that comes from ancient mythology. And the labyrinth in ancient mythology is basically meant to hold symbolism for the purpose of teaching important lessons for the inner self and the soul. So it's kind of like a, a reflective self-healing book kind of self-help but not in the traditional way of this is how you help yourself it uses short stories parables or quotes to depict the labyrinth in ways that kind of illuminate the dark and winding path towards enlightenment and self-healing i would recommend it to people who are you know journeying towards self-healing you know understanding the self more clearly more deeply my favorite quote so far is, what do you sacrifice to the monster that lives inside you? The people you encounter, the people you love, yourself. Basically in this quote, the monster represents the ego. You know, a lot of us let our egos get in the way of many things that we want, that we desire. Sometimes it sabotages relationships with yourself, with others, um, with your career, with many things. Um, it's not really a a representation of who we are, who we want, but it is something that lives inside of us. That was Toronto singer and producer Haley Smalls with Don't Want It. Dog-eared. 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 The books that never get old. Hi, I'm Kevin Chong, the author of The Double Life of Benson Yu, and a book I love to reread is In Pharaoh's Army by Tobias Wolfe. In Pharaoh's Army is an account of the author's time during the Vietnam War as a soldier. Uh, the reason why I love this book is because I first read it as a student in my 20s, and it was one of the reasons why I wanted to become a writer. Reading it again, unlike a lot of the other things I've read at that time, I am sort of dumbfounded by the language, the moral ambiguity, the odd and ultimately fitting sort of directions the stories uh, ultimately take. It's really nice to return to a book and to find new things about it as you age as a person and to learn more about yourself as you read the same book uh, again and again. 
We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I am Jordan Abel, the author of Empty Spaces, and you are listening to the next chapter on CBC Radio 1. Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. Those famous Bob Marley lines that we just heard are also the epigraph for Asha Ashanti Bromfield's new novel, Songs of Irie. The book is filled with reggae music as well as romance and rebellion. The story is about two best friends, Irie and Jilly. They're graduating from high school at a dangerous time in Jamaica's history. It's the eve of the 1976 election. Political divisions have erupted into violence on the streets. On the surface, Jilly and Irie are unlikely friends. They come from completely different backgrounds, but their shared love for reggae music inspires and binds them. The question is, will their relationship withstand their differences and the threatening time they live in? Asha Ashanti Bromfield spoke with Ryan B. Patrick in Toronto. So in the book Songs of Irie, you include two epigraphs from the beginning one is from Bob Marley, the other is a Jamaican proverb. Can you share those words in the Jamaican patois and, and explain why you wanted to begin the novel with that? Yeah, you know, it's such an interesting thing. So mm. it's if I know so, I nearly so. Mm. And that's like a Jamaican saying. And it pretty much means that if it didn't go like this, it went something like this. And for me, what was really interesting about this period in Jamaica is that I had no idea about it. It wasn't until I started talking to my parents that they started opening up to me about these stories mm. that happened that were just so crazy to me that yeah. this was such a time in Jamaica that they lived through and they didn't that it was just so casual. Mm. And so I think in the beginning, I really dealt with who am I to tell this story? I wasn't there. I didn't live in the 70s. And I just realized that's just all an illusion. These are my stories. They're my people, my family, you know, and if I don't tell them, who will? And so that was sort of like my saving grace of like, you know what, if it didn't go like this, it went something like this based off the research that I did. And if I were living in that time, you know, I feel like these are characters that would have existed and would have been. And I also feel like, too, a lot of the political history that happens in it is pretty on the nose. So mm. if I know so, I nearly so. <laughs> Got it. So the book is called Songs of Irie. And Irie, that word, everyone knows it. Everything Irie mine, you know what I mean? Yeah. In, the, in the terrible Jamaican accent. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but when you really think about the, that word, it's very powerful. You yeah. know what I mean? So when you think of Irie, what comes to mind and what do you think of? Well, I immediately think of my niece because my brother named her middle name Irie. Mm. And I remember when he did that, I thought it was so interesting. I was like, that's a really beautiful name. And it made me think a lot more about the word you know, Irie, it's this idea when you come to Jamaica, it's like eternal peace. Irie is a state of being. Mm. Um, no problem. You know, they say that all the time in Jamaica. It's just like a real place of peace. And I feel like it's something that we're all sort of striving for. And I think when we look at such a tumultuous time in Jamaica's history, when there was so much war happening, I thought it was so incredible that these reggae artists were still able to reach for Irie, to mm. reach for peace and to believe in something more than what they were seeing outside of their door, which was murder, you know, and I, I was really inspired by that. And I feel like all of those songs, all of those reggae songs, especially from that time, are really about peace. And so that's where the title came from. Irie. <laughs> so uh, we begin the novel, uh, 1976, mm -hmm. the character's name Irie. Irie, the other person is named Jilly, and they've completed their final day of high school, and the election is weeks away. This election is fictional, but it's definitely inspired on yeah. real events. 
Talk about this election. What happened? Yeah. So the 1976 election in Jamaica was one of the most heated times. The PMP and the JLP were completely warring. They had two different ideas on which way, which direction the island should be run, because this was shortly after Jamaica received not emancipation, but independence from the British. And so there was a huge class division. There were people in Jamaica who believed that this is a black island, we can run ourselves, and we deserve the opportunity to, you know, have our own businesses and support ourselves and all that stuff. And then there were more upper class conservative people who felt the complete opposite and felt that we needed the help of the U.S. um, with things like I guess just like capitalism. They felt like we needed capitalism and we needed American companies to keep the island running. And so from there, there was a massive division in the streets. So in my book, um, it's a little bit changed from that event, but it is the uh, PLM and the JC... JCP, I think. And those are acronyms for? Those are acronyms for the People's Liberation Movement and the Jamaican Conservative Group. And so Irie is from the ghettos of Jamaica. She comes from a very impoverished area where her father owns this record store and a lot of Rastafarians will come by and play their music. It's a very like up and coming sort of thing. And what a lot of people don't know is that reggae music was actually not even allowed to be played on the radio in Mm. Jamaica in the Mm -hmm. 70s because it was just considered low down music, you know, it was considered music that was for the poor. And so on the opposite parallel of that, I have Jilly and Irene and Jilly are best friends because they go to the same school. But Jilly's from the hills and her family are completely conservative. And, you know, mm-hmm. there you have two worlds that, that completely that crash. Collide. Yeah. Collide. Mm-hmm. I find it fascinating and also infuriating that people don't know this history. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in the acknowledgments, you thank your father for teaching me about this important critical time in our history. Yes. What did your father teach you? Oh, everything. He'll be so happy if he's listening to this. <laughs> my dad is my complete consultant on this book. I mean, I had so many questions. Like I said, I remember when I it first came up, my parents, would they were so casual about it. My mom lived in uh, Kentire when she was younger, and a lot of Irie is based on her story. My dad lived in Kingston at the time, and he would tell me stories about unfortunately, old folks' home being burnt down or babies being killed or bodies in the streets. It was a very crazy time. And so many people in in Jamaica survived this time. And it's just kind of seen as like normal, I guess, because it's not talked about. And the more that I spoke to my dad, I just kept getting little pieces of information. And I think the biggest thing he really taught me was about Michael Manley, who I think throughout my research has sort of become like a spiritual grandfather to me in some ways because I had to watch so many of his speeches. And Who was Michael Manley? So, yeah, so Michael Manley was the prime minister for the party that was fighting a bit more for the people's liberation. They say he mm. was like the poor people's prime minister because he really believed that poor people deserved a fighting chance in Jamaica. So he did things like open up education in the schools and allowed for girls like Irie to go to school with girls like Jilly. He really believed in um, democratic socialism and he was really good friends with Fidel Castro. So as you can see, mm. got a little muddy in terms yeah. of politics. But I do feel like he he used his privilege to really try to make change in Jamaica. So, so yeah. it definitely sounds like you did your research, whether learning from your father or just researching for this book. But how did you want to depict that without it being like a 101 or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, how, how did you convey that class conflict and struggle in the book? Well, that's a great question. I mean, we see it in so many different ways with Irene and Jilly. Um, the number one being that Jilly has this future abroad that's being promised to her. But her best friend Irie gets into a bit of a bind when things at the shop start to heat up. Also, Irie is a budding musician yeah. and she loves to sing. And that is like her thing. She wants to be a star. And so... Irie and Jilly are making plans for Irie to perform at a really big uh, reggae jam that's happening. And so that's sort of like the trajectory that they go on this journey together and sort of have to decide what side of the revolution they really want to be Mm. on. And I love that aspect of music. You can definitely feel that you you love writing those parts. You know what I mean? (laughs) So Irie has a gift of music. She can sing. She can write. She's passionate about using her words. There's a lot of power to Mm. her words. Why is she compelled to write? Well, I think a lot of Irie is based on me. You know, mm. I love I love music. That's my first love. And I knew that I wanted to – I always try to, like, approach my books from the perspective of if I'm playing this character in a movie one day, what is the role that I want to play? And a Jamaican musician 
of course. Mm, That's just so awesome, you know? (laughs) And I also feel like women are so not represented in reggae in the ways that they should be. And a lot of times you see that so many women, especially back then, were the backbone of all of these Rastas, you know? If you look at Bob Marley with Rita Marley and these women that really surrounded them. And I thought it would be really cool to put a woman at the forefront of that story because I think sometimes the stories of young girls kind of get lost especially during a time like that. Right. So you say Irie is kind of a lot like you, a singer, songwriter, and actor. Yeah. On the other side, there's Jilly. She's like mm. a softer character, but she has a lot of poise, a lot of strength, and her power of deduction. So how does music unite them? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. That feeling of Irie, peace. I think Jilly's looking for an escape from her life and the mm. pressures that she has to deal with with her family. Jilly deals a lot with perfectionism. Her relationship with her mother, having to be the perfect politician's daughter, it's a very stifling life. And I think that for Jilly, she's like seeking this escape so desperately. And she finds it in Irie, who also happens to be seeking an escape from the war mm-hmm. outside of her door. Yeah. You know, so I think the music was really like a safe haven for their freedom to, yeah. to feel peace. Let's talk about that amidst all this political turmoil. Mm-hmm. Irie loves working in her father's record shop. She listens to music with Jilly there. Uh, how much is Ricky, who is Ivy's father, and that record store inspired by your own grandfather? Oh, so inspired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my grandfather, God rest his soul, he owned like the bodice record store. <laughs> Say bodice bodice <laughs> in Kingston. And, uh, you know, he was ahead of his time. You know, Jamaica was very Christian conservative mm. in the 70s. We were just coming out of ska music, which for people who don't know, was very like prancy type of, you know, dancing music. We had a lot of like Western influence as well. And so when reggae came about, mm. it was seen as mm. no, like it was considered rebellion. Mm. And my grandfather was a rebel <laughs> straight up. He mm. really was. Mm. And, you know, I think he was a flawed man, completely flawed. But in a lot of ways, he imprinted on my mom and her sisters a lot of confidence mm. um, because they were mainly raised by him. And I think through growing up at the shop, they really got a sense of like what the music really was about and so growing up here in Canada when they migrated my grandfather would throw these like dance halls and Mm, like mm, blast mm. reggae when I was a kid we'd Mm. be going to like these banquet halls and it really impacted me as a Mm. kid and so I think Ricky is really definitely based off my grandfather I love that so Songs of Irie is your second book um, but it's also the second time you've written about a strong female character Mm. who's in her teens Hurricane Summer you came out in 2021 What did you want to say about young women coming of age, coming to womanhood, um, that male gaze? You know what I mean? You seem to keep coming to those themes. What's happening here? It really just is the struggles of being a black girl in Mm. the world. I feel like one thing with me, acting was my background. And I felt completely limited by that. All the scripts I was getting for over a decade were so one dimensional. Mm. And I just kept thinking, like, if I keep reading these scripts, like I'm going to start thinking that I'm I am that that the box that they're trying to put me in that they try to put black girls in. And I feel like oftentimes our humanity is just so stripped. People, yeah. black women and men, we're not given the full universal three dimensional humanity in terms of storylines and scripts. And so. I'm really passionate about that because I faced it. And I know what that's like to be a young person and be like, hey, I have so much to say and so much to offer. But people are just like, yeah, no, we don't see that. We're going to put you right over here in the sassy black girl box. Mm. And it's just like it can just feel so stifling, you know, and hurtful. And I really write for my inner child. I think like (laughs) that part of myself that didn't fully get to play make believe the way that we see other white characters are able to do. And I hope that through my stories, black girls find a bit more humanity and a bit more redemption mm. and a bit more like their their struggles aren't in vain, yeah. that they're not alone, because I think sometimes that journey can feel very lonely. And I hope that my books also inspire young girls to tell their stories and know that they have a story worth telling. Mm. So, Asha, the last time you were on the next chapter with your novel, um, Hurricane um, Summer, that you mentioned that was like a love letter mm-hmm. to Jamaica. So what is this book, uh, Songs of Irie, all about? What do you want readers to take away from it? I want people to know how colonization has really left Jamaica an island of haves and have-nots. And I just want people to be aware of how slavery affected us. I think that's something that's really big. It's like when we talk about the ghosts of colonization and the chains and all this stuff, it's not metaphorical. It's like a literal generational trauma that we still deal with and we still see the impacts of in Jamaica right now. I mean, one of my favorite quotes in the book is when um, 
Irie says to Jilly that, you know, Jamaica's motto is out of many, one people. And she asks her, you know, are we really one people? You know, are we experiencing the same war, the same poverty, the same crime? Is it really one island? And I think that's incredibly important. Amazing. Asha, thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be here. Asha Shanti Bromfield is the author of Songs of Irie. She was in Toronto. That was Ryan B. Patrick in conversation with Asha Ashanti Bromfield about her new novel, Songs of Irie. Elizabeth de Mariaffi writes twisty, smart thrillers, and she also likes to read them. And really, who among us can resist a book filled with page-turning suspense? She's always looking for titles to recommend, and she joins me from St. John's to tell me about three of her most recent reads. Hello, Elizabeth. Welcome back. Hi. I wanted to ask you this just before we get to your list. How does the, the reading of thrillers and mystery novels mesh with your own writing? You know, sometimes it's the perfect thing for me to read, and then other times it it's almost like panic-inducing. I'm like, oh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> so, uh, so I try to kind of adjust the rhythm of my reading depending where I am in the writing process. Okay. So on that note, let's uh, let's talk about your list. What is uh, what is the first book on your list? Okay. So I've got three books and they kind of run the gamut from like what I would call like touch of thriller to like really like compelling page turner kind of um, compulsive, I guess, suspense novel. So our first one is the one that I would say is like more like touch of thriller and it's Emma Klein's The Guest. So The Guest starts with uh, a young woman who's gotten away with it, or at least it really seems like she has. It seems like she's escaped something. Uh, but we meet Alex on the very first page caught in a rep- riptide. She's uh, gone out for a swim and things have gotten away from her. And so there's this moment of panic that starts the book. Um, and while she obviously manages to save herself, it, I think that that moment of panic really uh, sets the tone for the whole story. What does she do over the uh, the course of this novel, without giving away too much? If that's uh, <laughs> that might be too uh, too suggestive a question, actually. No, no, it's okay. So what we know about Alex is um, she's a call girl. She's run away from New York City because she owes her former roommates a lot of money, and she's in big trouble with a criminal named Dom. Uh, but she kind of lucks out, actually, and a sort of a, a weekend away with an older man turns into an entire summer living in safety at his house in Long Island. But the problem is that that kind of life, um, you know, you just have to be very careful. So you get, we get the impression that Alex has kind of been tiptoeing through her life all summer, just trying to keep herself safe and lay low here in Long Island, where it's very tony and swank, and she sort of doesn't fit in. And uh, so you can't make any mistakes in a life like that. Mm. And Alex is kind of the queen of bad decisions. So, of course, by the end of Chapter 3, she's made a mistake and gotten herself kicked out of Simon's house. Um, so now she's, like, alone in Long Island, and we start to learn a little bit more about Dom, the man who's trying to track her down. So Dom is someone from her past. We know he's been in hiding for a whole year on the West Coast trying to stay out of jail. And he's kind of shown up again, and Alex has had a weekend with him back in the spring that ended when she split suddenly, stealing quite a bit of money and quite a bit of drugs from him. So she's um, really on the run, and he's kind of hunting her. And uh, so without telling you too much, the book is really, uh, I guess, a little journey as Alex tries to float from space to space to stay on Long Island, to stay under the radar uh, while she knows that Dom is out there sort of getting closer and closer. It's interesting you started uh, talking about the safety of Long Island, and I said, oh, that doesn't sound too suspenseful, but then obviously <laughs> she's on the run for what seems like her life. That That is the suspense that um, yeah. runs through here. Yeah. So that's that's the sort of the thread of suspense. It's always, there, there's a constant threat in, in Alex's life of everything falling apart, right? She lives a very tenuous life to start with. I was thinking, too, if you've read... Now, this one's not a thriller, but if you've read Happy Hour by Marlo Granados, uh, 
which is a Canadian book from a couple of years ago, there's some real similarities here. And, and the difference is that criminal underbelly. <laughs> mm. But um, but so much of the rest of it in terms of the threat um, and the drive to survive, um, you know, in Long Island is, is very similar. Okay. Well, I think you've done a great sales pitch on this book for people who like uh, suspense. Tell me what your second book on the list is. Okay, so now we're going to take like one more step down the ladder into, uh, I guess, suspense or, or crime. In this case, it's really crime. And take a look at Crook Manifesto by Colson Whitehead. So I would call this one Harlem Noir. Um, now, the first thing to know is it's not exactly a novel. Um, if you've read his previous book, Harlem Shuffle, you're going to know exactly what to expect. Uh, Crook Manifesto is made up of three individual stories that are each about 100 pages long that are linked together by a few key characters. Um, so Harlem Shuffle followed the same main character as this book, whose name is Ray Carney. Ray Carney owns a very successful um, Harlem uh, furniture store, and he used to have a very successful criminal side hustle as a fence. And that book followed him through the 1960s. Crook Manifesto begins in 1970. Now, having said all that, I have not read Harlem Shuffle. I know that because I looked it up. Mm. And um, I didn't have any trouble jumping in with Crook Manifesto. I didn't feel like I was missing anything. Um, you know, if I had not sort of known just through book world that... Um, that there had been a previous book, I wouldn't even have thought I was missing anything at all. So these stories are straight crime. They are fast-moving, fast-talking plot. When the book starts in 1970, Ray Carney has been out of the fence business for some time, and uh, and everything's going along fine until his teenage daughter really wants tickets to a Jackson 5 show. And so he starts to, like, call up his old contacts and to see if he can, like, hustle some tickets to, you know, make his teenage daughter love him kind of thing. And uh, he gets to a crooked cop that he used to have a relationship with, a guy named Munson. And Munson comes through. Munson's like, you're in luck. I can totally get you two tickets to that show. Uh, But you just have to do one favor for me. And so, of course, that one favor turns into, like, an odyssey. (laughs) Mm. And... uh, you know, when I was reading this, I actually said to my husband, this is like, there's so much plot in this book. It's like a fan fold of plot. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's uh, it's fast talking. It's fast moving. The language is really, really great. Um, the second story in the book, uh, we're back at Ray Carney's furniture store, which is now being used as the set for a black exploitation film made by a former arsonist named Zippo Flood. And uh, we're dealing with his uh, missing leading lady. And in the third story, Ray Carney sets a thug for hire named Pepper, who we've already met before, uh, off to solve um, an insurance fraud fire mystery. So it, there's uh, the sort of the range of characters that we would expect to find in New York crime stories, uh, mobsters, gangsters who are all fighting over turf. Um, these are sort of background characters who also come in and out of all the stories. And uh, yeah, lots of fun. A really smart, smart book, uh, but also just uh, you know, a really propulsive read. Nothing nothing too surprising about it being a smart read, right? Colson Whitehead, yeah. a lot of people would be very excited. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, for those who might not be aware. Feels like he can write about just about anything, and, and, and it's always entertaining. So that's great. Yeah. Um, super entertaining, super enjoyable. You know, like it, it gives you all the things at once, right? Deep dive into great language, uh, some history that, you know, that uh, was really interesting to me as well, but it's just like it's just there. It's just there for you. What is the final book on your list? Okay, so the last one I'm going to talk about today is what I would call the most thrillery thriller <laughs> of the column. Um, it's a real page turner. If you have a beach vacation book, this is the book that you want. Uh, the author is Robin Harding, uh, who's Canadian, and the book is called The Drowning Woman. So if you've read Robin Harding before, you're going to know that she's a real pro at this. Uh, this is one of those novels that just sucks you in fast, holds you there. I read it, um, like, I was going to say I read it in a single day, which doesn't even tell you how fast I read it. Like, read it in about two sittings, um, you know, sitting in the sun in the deck chair. So this story is told in two voices. The first narrator that we meet is Lee Gulliver. Uh, Lee Gulliver uh, is or was a chef whose restaurant dream died during the pandemic when New York City shut down, but not before she'd borrowed a lot of money from a shady investor who then came after her with a hammer when she couldn't pay. So Lee's on the run. She has lost everything. She's estranged from her family. She has no money. She 
she's living out of her car and trying to do so as far away from New York as she can. So she finds herself in Seattle. And she's trying to find, like, safe places to sleep in her car, which obviously is difficult. And she settles on a a pretty swank beach neighborhood in Seattle. And early one morning, she's woken up because she can hear the sound of a woman sobbing. And so she looks out of her car, and then she sees this woman throw herself into the ocean. So Lee does what, you know, I think we would all do. She dives in after her. She tries to save her. Um... And this other woman is the other narrator of the story. Her name is Hazel Laval. So Hazel is trapped in, I think, what could only be called like a sensationally abusive relationship where she's really treated like a slave by uh, by a very rich and powerful man. So she's not happy to have her life saved. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the women part ways and Lee thinks, OK, well, that's the end of that. It's just like another dramatic thing that's happened to me. But then Hazel shows up at Lee's car again and uh, and brings her breakfast. And turns out the two women kind of have a lot in common. They both feel really trapped and they become friends. And then Hazel asks Lee to help her escape, to help her disappear. And it's a really dangerous plan, but how can Lee say no? And now I cannot tell you anymore <laughs> because <laughs> anything else I tell you would ruin the story. Uh, there's so many great twists and turns here. Like you are going to get paper cuts. Like it's that kind of a page turner. So, uh, you know, <laughs> if you're if you're looking, you know, for for that story to curl up on the couch with, if it's starting to feel like fall where you are or if you've got a vacation booked, uh, The Drowning Woman by Robin Harding. I like you've really um, you really painted a psychological thriller here. And uh that might ruin my beach vacation. So I'd probably read it in the comfort of my own home by a fireplace. That's what there I would do. Go. I need safety around me, not another beach and the risk of somebody drowning and me going after them. Uh, that's very exciting, uh, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. You've given some people um, some great recommendations here. And, of course, from our end, fingers crossed that there's another Elizabeth de Mariaffe thriller on the way. Thanks so much, and thanks for having me on again. Elizabeth de Mariaffe's most recent book is The Retreat, She joined me today from St. John's, and the books she was talking about are on our website, cbc.ca slash the next chapter. That's it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews. Thanks this week to Olivia Pasquarelli, Sarah Cooper, and to the CBC Books digital team. Last year, Naven Ruthman gave adult horror a spin for the first time in his novella Help Meet. Next week, he joins me to talk about writing horror for young people and drawing from his own adolescence to write his new book, The Grimmer. Plus, Quebecois writer and translator Catherine Leroux on her novel The Future. It's an intriguing alternate history of the French in North America. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.